There was a guy named Alexander III of Macedon. He would ultimately become uh, named Alexander the Great. Uh, he would be a Grecian warrior uh, that would overtake much of the known world in his day and time. Uh, he would rule from the years 336 B.C. to about 323, only lived to about the age of 32. Uh, but historians and others, uh, folklore, would say there was an encounter with a man in his camp that was brought before him. It was also named Alexander, uh, but the Alexander in his camp uh, was not showing the fierce tenacity that the leader thought he should. And so he heard of a, a cowardly encounter, uh, apparently, and so they brought Alexander before Alexander the Great, in which Alexander the Great looked at this young man and said, what is your name? And the boy replied, Alexander. And he said, no, I said, what is your name? And the boy, just a little louder, said, Alexander. He said, boy, I'm going to ask you one more time, what is your name? Alexander! And he said, yeah, I'm going to tell you from this point forward, you either change your conduct or you need to change your name. And I've always had that story stick with me in my mind, but I think that pretty much exemplifies exactly what the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4. And he goes, hey, listen, if we are going to call ourselves children of light, we're going to call ourselves children of Jesus. And he says, you got to change your conduct to where it looks as if you are the partaker of of the divine excellencies of the king in which you, should, you, you claim to love and live for. So if you're, you're here today, we're grateful that you're here. Today we're going to be talking about what it looks like for us to live in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called, or that our conduct would match the name in which we claim, claim to live under. So if you're here for the very first time, we're grateful that you're here. We pray today is a blessing and encouragement uh, to you. We want to welcome those that are joining us in this moment in Edgewood, uh, as well as those that are joining us online. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Ephesians 4, because as we think about conduct and what it looks like, uh, we can know uh, that Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 are, uh, in a sense, the theological principles of what a new man should live in, and then chapters 4 through 6 are in a sense, how we should live those out. And so it's uh, one of which uh, is who we are in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, and 4 through 6 are how we make that happen. And so we know that Jesus cares very much about how we live. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 7, he says, uh, this, you'll know a man by his fruit. So at the end of the day, what comes out of a man is really important. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, 15 through 20, he just says, uh, you need to know that a bad bad tree can't produce good fruit. And likewise, a good tree won't produce bad fruit. So you and I are someone, if we are living under the banner of Christ, people ought to know it. And so that's the goal today, is just to get really practical. And I think the Apostle Paul does something for us that every single person in this room will run into at least one thing today that we go, I struggle with that. And, and I think that um, I can say that with confidence because I think I struggle with two or three of these things. And so let's pray together, and we're just going to ask God to intervene on, on, on behalf of the Holy Spirit, that he would mold us, shape us, conform us. Heavenly Father, we give this time to you. We thank you uh, for our brothers and sisters in this place. Um, thank you that you love us enough to give us the Word of God that is shaping us, transforming our heart and our minds into your image. I pray that as we read through these things, that you would make it very apparent to us what it is that you desire for us. And I pray that you would help us to learn more about you, that we would cast off the old life we used to live, that we would be renewed um, in you, and that we would become the, the righteous, the blameless people you call us to be. Uh, we need your help. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So in uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 25, this is week 10. Uh, as we dive into this, it's extremely practical, but it begins in verse 25 with this word, therefore. And it says, therefore, put away falsehood. Now, what I need you to realize, the reason he puts it therefore is because of the handful of verses that we discovered last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go uh, onto our website, to the resources page. You can check out all of the series there. Check out last week, but just sum it up for you real quickly. Um, we need, as believers in Christ, uh, according to Ephesians 4, really, uh, verse 20, we need to learn Jesus. We need to learn who he is, why he matters, what that does to change our life. And then as we begin to do that, we live in a new manner. So we cast off the old. Colossians 3 says this way, we're clothed in Christ. And so as we're clothed in him, it means that we no longer gratify, Ephesians 5, the desires of our sinful flesh, but we live and we walk in the Spirit. And so we ought to live for him. And so because of the fact that we have a new life in Christ, we're new creations for those of us in this room that know him, that therefore is, as a result of what God's done in our life, therefore we ought to see some things happen. And so here it is. Here are the things that as a result of knowing Jesus, being clothed in him, here are some things that ought to be true in all of our lives in this room. Therefore, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And that word there, falsehood, is the uh, word uh, pseudos, which literally means um, to put away lies, deceitful scheming, or intentional falsehood. The idea is put away the intent to deceive. And so if we think about um, our old lives, uh, there are many of us that we got by with intentional scheming. And so many of us, we survived that way. Many of us grew up in homes in which if we didn't do what was right, uh, we were going to get beat for it. And so what would oftentimes happen, um, some of us in here worse than others, um, to the point where you have that in your mind, you lied as a defense mechanism to keep you from hostility. Uh, in a sense, that's what happens oftentimes with children that are raised in other atmospheres that are brought here, adopted, whether it be from China or Russia or other places. Some of the, the defense mechanisms that they eventually build up is this idea of falsehood, deceitfulness, because it allows them to survive. That's how they thrive. And so for many of us in this room, when we put away falsehood, we're not just talking about, um, hey, just don't lie anymore. What we're trying to do is we're trying to put away the intentional deceit because there are many of us that we intentionally deceive people in our past. And there are a myriad of ways that we could do that. Matter of fact, if we think about putting away falsehood or intentional lying, we need to know why that's important. Matter of fact, Jesus had an exchange in John chapter 8 um, with the Pharisees. And uh, the Pharisees are having this conversation and they go, hey, our father is Abraham. And Jesus goes, no, 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 your father is not Abraham because if, if your father was Abraham, then your father would also be God in which I am God and I am his son. And so you would know me because I am the truth. But he goes, you, you actually are being deceived. And he says this in John 8, you are of your father. And then he says, the devil. And he goes, and, and your will is to do the Father's desires. And then he says, and, and your father was a murderer from the beginning. He's deceitful. He doesn't stand to the truth. There is no truth in him. Matter of fact, he says this about Satan. He goes, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. He's the father of lies. And this is what Jesus says to some of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders of the day. He goes, you need to know that there is no truth in you. 
You are hypocrites, you are slanderers, you have put on falsehood. Now the question is, is why does Jesus say that? Here's why. Because Jesus would say something six chapters over in John chapter 14 about himself, and he would say, as he's talking to the disciples about going away, he would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. But he says something really important. I am the way, and then he says the truth. Now everybody in here say the truth with me. One, two, three. The truth. Now, the reason I say that is because I need you to think through a concept with me real quickly. If Jesus is the truth, it means that there can be no falsehood or intentional deceit in him. And if there is no deceit or intentional falsehood in him because he never sinned, it means that when we have intentional deceit or falsehood, when we lie or scheme or we do things to protect ourselves, we need to know that that doesn't come from God, but it actually comes from the father of lies. Matter of fact, the father of lies would become uh, intentionally deceitful very early on in the game. Y'all remember Genesis 3? And here's what you need to know. Satan is the father of lies, and he lies about everything. He lies about you. He lies about God. He lies about his son. He lies about uh, humanity. He, lies, he, he li- uh, lies about really the world around us. There is nothing that the enemy does that ultimately is not a lie. He wants to give you half-truths, but listen, a half-truth is still a lie. Why? Because the truth is only the truth. And so you can't have half-truths. You have half-truths which are full lies. The enemy wants to be the liar. Here's the deal. He wants to keep you in the dark. You know when you lie, we do it to intentionally pull the covers over someone's eyes. You ever heard that expression? The reason we pull covers over somebody's eyes is because we want them to be kept in the dark. But here's what you need to know. Not only is Jesus all truth, but he also says something about himself in 1 John 1, that he is also the light. And so get this, the enemy, he wanders around in darkness, deceiving. He's the father of lies. He is not what? truth. He is liar. He is a coward. He is in the dark. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the embodiment of all that you can see and know. I am in the light. If you claim um, that there is, is no darkness in you, he goes, listen, you're not even in the light because I am the light. And so what we need to know is this, is that Jesus is truth. He deals with things in the light. We honor him best when we put falsehoods in the light. Because when we put falsehoods in the dark, then we are acting as if Jesus is not the one who's redeemed us, as in the Father is not our Father. We are acting in one of two ways. It is either in truth or it is in lies. It is either under the banner of God, it is under the banner of Diablos, the accuser, Satan himself. You got to pick and choose, okay? Because you can't have both. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain in John chapter 8. He goes, You can't claim to be the son of Abraham and the son of God, and yet you are deceitful and you're scheming. That's what he means. Now, you might ask yourself, Well, I don't really have falsehood. And the question I would ask is, Are you sure? Because falsehood comes in many different forms and varieties. Matter of fact, there are many of us, when we think about falsehood, deceitful scheming, half-truths that we do in business practice. And so oftentimes what we'll do is we will share half-truths or we might do something that is not in the light. Uh, for some of us, we grew up in places and that's, we were scheming. And so we would oftentimes cheat or we would claim that somebody else was going to study for us or they were going to write our paper. Listen, that's, 
That's lies. It's deception. It's not truth. Uh, we can do it in a variety of different ways. We can do it in our, with our coworkers. Uh, we can do it as uh, we think about life. We can do it with our taxes. We can do so many different things that don't honor the Lord in the sense we can wander around in falsehood. But he goes, you should put away falsehood, and we should speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And the idea there is that as we speak the truth with our neighbor, because we're members of one another, is that we would know the truth. So kind of think of it like this. Uh, how many of you, you just go ahead and raise your hand on both campuses, that you have kids under three in your home? Go ahead, raise your hand. Okay, so you have a kiddo under three. Here's what we know uh, at our house back when we had kids under three. Um, one is that life was crazy, and number two, we were always having to protect our kids it seemed like from themselves. Um, they didn't know it, but we knew it. And so it didn't matter if they were trying to get under something and um, eat a Tide Pod or uh, if it was that they were trying to touch the stove that was burning, right? Either way, here's what we needed them to realize is that at this point, uh, we needed you to understand the truth. And here's what a body does. A hand, as it sits over a fire, will communicate to the body, the brain, very quickly that that's hot and that will hurt. But let me ask you just hypothetically that your hand was able to touch a fire and it was burning up. And the problem was, is it wasn't communicating to your brain that that actually hurt. That would be a problem, would it? Wouldn't it? And so the idea here is that in the body, that every part is working, communicating together. There's no falsehood. There's no deceit. There's no darkness. But everybody knows, and you work through the truth. The hand communicates with the foot, the eye with the mouth, vice versa, and so on. That's the expression. That's the idea here. And then he says, and then verse 26, and then be angry. Be angry. And then he says, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this is a verse that's always intrigued me. Because like, what, okay, what do you mean? Like, be angry. Like, is that okay? And what, what does that even mean? Like, do I get a point of anger that's okay, that's not sinful? And then is there a point where it becomes sinful? And here's the interesting thing, is that in this sentence, Paul uses a couple of different Greek words in this sentence, and he does all three of the Greek words that you can find for anger in this entire chapter. Matter of fact, let me just walk you through this. What he says is, be angry, or be, or gizo, is what he says, which is to provoke or arouse to anger. So it's not this outburst. Uh, matter of fact, you're going to see an outburst of anger at the very end of the chapter is this idea of thumos. Um, that word is the like explosion, volcano eruption type of anger. Some of you know that. Some of you are that. Like your kids do something and voila, like you go from zero to 10 in less than three seconds. That's thumos. That's not the word here. So he says, be angry or gizo, be aroused to anger, but do not sin. So meaning don't be provoked to go to the next level and don't let the sun go down on your anger. And then he uses this word, uh, peror, gizmos, which literally means, he goes, don't let it escalate. And that word, peror, gizmos, means don't let it get to a point where it's seething. That it's beginning, the vapors are rising. So you go, well, what does he mean there? So can I be angry and not sin? And I would say yes. And I think the best term for that is this term called righteous anger. Now the question is, is can I have a righteous anger? And you go, yes. Do I do that very well? No. 
So what is a righteous anger? I think about Jesus when he goes into the temple and he, uh, he's going to clean out the temple with those who are taking advantage of others and making a mockery of his father's house. He goes, and hey, away from you. And I think about him flipping over tables. And I, I go, man, that would have been like on CNN. And did he sin? And we know he didn't sin. Why? Because it was a righteous anger and he must have handled that in a way that ultimately pleased God. Although I think about how I would have handled it and it probably wouldn't have pleased God. And so we know there's a fine line there, and we know if we're not careful that if, if it can begin to seethe, and then ultimately it can be an expression of thumos, which is an overflow outburst. I don't think that's what Jesus did in the temple, and the reason why is because that's what I would do. And so what Jesus does is he cleans the temple, um, and he does it in a righteous anger type of way. The question is, is what should I have an anger about that's righteous? And can I just hand, tell you a handful of things? Um, one, I think the church in America today ought to have a righteous anger over uh, immigration. What? Okay, we ought to have it over abortion. We ought to be thinking through these issues. Now, the question is not that we would agree on all of them, but they are things that are important. We ought to have righteous anger as we have conversation about all these. And you're like, okay, what else? Um, we ought to have it over uh, marriage. We ought to have it over uh, life outside of marriage, both same-sex attraction, but also uh, heterosexual relationships outside of marriage. We ought to have conversations. And you go, well, what's a righteous anger? It means that things that don't honor the Lord and that aren't holy in the way we handle them ought to stir in us a point where we go, that's not right. And not only is it not right, but we ought to have conversations to see what is right. And we ought to begin to have conversations that ultimately Honor the Lord in those things. And you go, well, I'm, I'm confused, okay? What does that mean? It means that there's a point where we stand up and we say right is right and that's not right. So what is that? It means that we intentionally put off falsehood. We work towards the truth. And if we work towards the truth, it means there's lots of hard conversations. And it means that we handle them in a way that honor and please the Lord. And here's what I know is regardless of what the issue oftentimes is in the church, we oftentimes don't handle them well. And we move from a point where it's an outburst and then it's something that seethes. And we don't practice and don't let the sun go down in your anger. And so you might ask the question, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm supposed to handle every conflict before the sun goes down? And the answer is no. But I do think this is a really good guideline on what Paul's trying to say to the church in Ephesus. And I think the point should be crystal clear for us as well, is that we ought to handle conflict swiftly and quickly. We ought to expedite the process, meaning, hey, when you become angry, don't sin and don't let the sun go down on your anger. So basically what he's saying is when you first get angry, whether it be righteous or unrighteous, deal with it quickly. If not, then it's going to become a seething anger. And oftentimes, here's what happens. If I don't deal with conflict quickly, then guess what? It builds. And when it builds with me, there's a point where I don't handle it well. And I don't handle it well, and it can be within our body, it can be within the workplace, it can be within the home, it can be with my children. It's one thing to just kind of jump in and say, hey, I see this, I think we need to talk about it. It's another thing for it to build and build and build and build. And oftentimes, many of us in this room, we handle it in the building fashion. Like we take it, we take it, we take it for a while, but the challenge is the longer we take it, finally, we're seething to the point that we have a blow up. And so the question is, is what is it? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It means this. When you're angry, 
go to your brother, Matthew 18, as fast as you can and resolve the conflict. Do not let it build. Now, you might ask the question, Brandon, do you ever have to do that? And the answer is yes, every day. Listen, I need you to hear this. If you don't hear anything else about the message today, you should hear this. I have to handle conflict every day. Every day. Every day, I make amends. It's either with my children or with my wife or somebody I work with or it's somebody that I'm friends with. Every day, every day, I know every day of my life, I have to say, hey, I just said that and I'm sorry. Just yesterday, had a conversation. Hey, you know what? I jumped the gun there. Will you please forgive me? I think I missed that. I do that every day. There are many of us that we haven't done that in the last month and we ought to practice it in the body of Christ every day. Before the sun goes down on your anger, before you get to a seething or where you get frustrated or before you begin to get slanderous or malicious or you go and you share it with everybody else in your journey group about something that happened, listen, that's sinful. What's sinful is when you take an issue that, that ultimately you've allowed to fester and you seed on and you begin to share. He goes, no, the idea is, is put away falsehood, put away malice, go handle things. And hey, when you're angry, go. Don't let the sun go down. So here's the deal. At the end of the day, today, the sun is going to go down. And if you're going to bed angry, it's your fault. Because you could have picked up the phone. You could have said, hey, can we just have a cup of coffee? You could catch somebody in the lobby. It happens every day. So I'll just tell you this last week, even this last week, there are people, even in our office, that I had to go, hey, we, we just got to sit down. I, something ain't right. Let's talk through this a little bit. Every day. And you can handle it in whichever way you want, but the most honoring way is to handle it in a way that honors the Lord. And here's why, because verse 27, because we don't want to give any opportunity to the devil. And the idea uh, there is the word devil, which is diabolos, which literally means accuser. It's speaking of Satan, or uh, in three cases in the New Testament, it's speaking to somebody really mean in the church that's malicious, and they are called the devil. So 34 times in the New Testament, it's speaking of Satan himself, and three times it's speaking to someone in the church that should be like Satan himself. I don't know how you want to refer to it, if it's somebody really mean in the church or if it's Satan himself. I think it's Satan himself in this context because of the way it reads. And so it says, and give no opportunity to the devil. So what that means is, is this. When you and I keep people in, in, in the dark, when we don't deal with things well, when we don't work through our sin or our anger in a way that ultimately honors the Lord, we don't expedite the process, then what happens is, is the longer things faster, Satan doesn't need to do any work because we do all his bidding for him. That's the text. Why does Satan need to be in our body working maliciously if we're going to be the malicious ones? If we're going to be the slanderers, if we're going to be the ones practicing falsehood in our body, then why does Satan need to be here? He doesn't need to be here, and neither does any of his followers. Why? Because we'll do all of his work for him. And that's what Paul says. By no means should anybody in the body of Christ, working together in truth, under the Father of light, and the one who is truth, ever be doing something that keeps people in the dark or ultimately causes division of the body. That's the point. Got it? And I think verse 28, we could explain uh, it by itself. I'm going to go ahead and give you my commentary anyway, okay? Uh, it says, let the thief no longer steal. What does that mean? Let the thief no longer steal, okay? And re- let him rather, what, labor by doing an honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Now, that word steal there is the word in the Greek called klepto. We get the word klepto 
kleptomaniac, okay? And so here's a kleptomaniac. It's somebody that takes other, thing, other people's stuff, okay? Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you know a kleptomaniac? Go ahead, raise your hand, okay? Now, if you didn't raise your hand, you might be a kleptomaniac, okay? Um, so the question is, what is that? It is somebody that steals. And you go, okay, is that a big deal? And you might think, well, no, it may be not that big of a deal. But there are some of us that we, we are kleptomaniacs, and here's why. It's because we're not taking uh, stuff maliciously. We don't walk into other people's house and take it. But some of us, we take pens from work, or some of us, we take paper, and we use it our, our, at our home for printing. There's lots of different ways that you can be a kleptomaniac. That's the idea here. He goes, and then he says, and here's the best way that you prevent that, and that is by putting in an honest day's work. Let him labor. And that word labor there is, is the word... Um, uh, Capi uh, Aho, which literally means uh, to labor to the point of exhaustion. So the point is, he goes, hey, no longer practice theft or thievery, but what I want you to do is put in an honest day's work to the point that when you lay your head down at night, you're thoroughly exhausted. Now, let me just speak into that real quickly, okay? If I hear a guy in our church say, hey, man, I'm really tired, I, I want to just say, hey, praise the Lord for that. Now, the question I have to then ask is, hey, why are you tired? And then that's a really important question. Are you tired because you stayed up till three in the morning playing video games? Or are you tired because you put in an honest day's work and you continually work hard and you're, you've grown wearisome and tired and in a sense, you are laboring for the needs of your family? Listen, that is to be commended. And here's why. I have no problem with getting up early and staying late, working if, as long as you're not running for a problem and as long as you're honoring the Lord in your labor. Here's why. Because it, in a sense, produces something in us that pleases the Lord. So here's what I want all men in our body to do. I want you to work so vigorously for your family and for the Lord, honoring Him in all things that at the end of the day, you wring yourself out. And you go, Lord, I have to have your strength to do this again tomorrow. That's what a man really should do. Uh, matter of fact, I think that it prevents a man from idleness. We don't need men have too much idle time. Now, uh, I, what I, I don't want you to hear me saying is that you shouldn't have schedules and routines and you shouldn't be home and present with your family. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, is that we in our culture need to quit finding ways to get quick rich we need to quit uh, investing money and strategies and things that ultimately don't pay. What we need to do is we need to go work an honest, hard day's work. We need to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And we need to wring ourselves out for the cause of Christ, the glory uh, of him and the good of our family every day. And we need to quit complaining that we're tired. Because at the end of the day, I signed up to be a husband, a father, and a follower of Jesus. And those things make me exhausted. But for the glory of God. And so there's not a day that I don't walk around and I'm tired. I'm always tired. Always tired. I, I, there's not a point. I've been on vacation a couple of weeks this summer. There's not a single point that I'm like, oh, man, I'm just refreshed. Because even vacation is work with three kiddos. But here's the deal. I am refreshed in the Lord. 
And that's okay. And that's, I think, what he's talking about. Just be careful. Hey, don't give the opportunity to the devil. Hey, don't practice theft anymore. And hey, labor after an honest day's work with your own hands. Now listen, it brings up another point real quick for me. It's just in the conversation that we're having in our home is um, some things in our home as it pertains to culture. And it pertains to ultimately what our kids are able to do and not do. Uh, And I don't want to project anything on you. I want you to think through it. The question is, is what oftentimes do we allow our kids to do that practice these things? And so the question is, is uh, oftentimes for my sons, hey, Dad, I've, I really have, uh, and it's not just my son, it's all my kiddos. Hey, Dad, I'd really like to play this video game. You okay with it? Um, no, I'm not okay with it. Well, why not? Because it's, it, it's PG-13? And I'm like, no, it's PG-12, man. Whatever. It don't matter. Uh, and he goes, no, like, why? And here's, here's a handful of reasons. Anything that pr- produces something in my kid, whether it be virtual or a video game, that I'm not okay with their own present-day reality, I'm, we say no to. And so I'm okay with my son playing a video game of football for a limited time because he can go outside in the yard and play football. I'm not okay with my son playing a game in which he puts a gun to somebody's head that he can't go do outside. Same same idea and concept. Same idea and concept. I'm not okay if my son goes and steals a bunch of people's things so he can build his own kingdom virtually that he can't do outside. At the end of the day, we've got to think through these things. At the end of the day, here's the deal. It's not just that. It's also from a time perspective. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm wanting to raise men. And here's what I know. Men work. Men work. And it's exhausting. And so listen, um, my nine-year-old can drive my truck, can drive my tractor, can mow our lawn, can weed eat our entire... He's nine. My seven-year-old's in practice. And you go, well, hey, is that because he's going to mow your yard and you're going to sit idly by? And the answer is no. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise a man. At the end of the day, what I need to know is that my boys aren't really good at video games. Now, can they play video games? Absolutely he can. But it needs to be with limits. And some of the limits are me, Philippians 4, 8, guarding their hearts and minds. It's not trustworthy. It's not true. It's not noble. Hey, if it's not honorable to the Lord, then we don't do them. And listen, I'm not projecting that onto you. What I am saying is this, is that we need to think through that verse. That it's not just about going and getting a paycheck and coming home. It's way more than that. An honest day's wage. Think through that for your family. Don't let me project my convictions onto you because I think there's grace in areas and I don't want to project that onto you. I just want you to know how I'm thinking through it myself. So think through that. And then here it goes. Uh, and why do we work with our own hands? So that we can build our own kingdom. We can have bigger houses, nicer cars, and better portfolios. That's what it says there in the Greek. <laughs> no, it says so we can share with anyone that we have needs. So the idea of this is why do we labor? Why do we do things? Why do we work hard so that we can keep for ourselves? And no, that's the American way. But that's not what Paul says. He goes, the reason you labor, the reason you're exhausted, the reason you take wheat from the field is not so that you can keep wheat for yourself. He goes, eat some of the wheat, but at the same time, sow some of it. And sow some of it to give more of it away. And the more, the more of the wheat you plant in your acreage, in your field, the more you can give away. But at the end of the day, the reason we labor to the point of exhaustion is so we provide for our family and then we meet the needs of other people. And there's, that's one of the greatest lessons that some of us in this room could learn is that at the end of the day, the reason we have stuff is not so we can have better stuff or hoard more stuff for ourselves. 
And maybe the point in this is generosity for us. I don't know. And then verse 29, and let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And so the idea of corrupting talk is the word sapros, which literally means no putrid, filthy um, thing that ultimately is corrupting. So think about uh, a piece of meat that's decaying or think about a piece of fruit that's rotten. That's the word. The idea is just, just disgusting. So let no corrupting talk come to your mouth. And as believers, we ought to be thinking through that. Matter of fact, Paul says it this way uh, in Colossians chapter 4 to the church in Colossae. He just says, hey, let your conversations always be gracious and let them be seasoned with salt. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would Paul say it that way? Because he goes, if we're not careful, our conversations can be putrid, filthy, and corrosive. Or they could be seasoned with salt, a preservative agent. So you just need to know, we're either preserving things around us or we're causing corruption and decay around us. And we do that with our mouth. James 3, he says it uh, this way. He goes, James says, hey, look, your, your tongue is a powerful thing. It's really, it's full of deadly poison. Uh, it's corrupt. Uh, he goes, hey, it's a challenge for all of us. And so we ought to make sure that we know that it's, it's, it's a fire and it can cause unrighteousness if we're not careful. That's what James 3, verse 6, 8, and 9 says. And so we need to know that the same mouth that we praise God with also is the same mouth that sometimes curses God with. And so we just need to think through that. Is my mouth praising God and cursing God? He goes, may it not be so. At the end of the day, our mouth should be producing preservative agent in our culture, the way that we think through things. And so that's gossip, it's slander, it's malice. Uh, For some of us in here, it's obscene language. Listen, if you're a mature believer in Christ, the obscene language should leave you at some point. Now, does that mean that you won't occasionally drop a bomb? No, it doesn't. But you should not make it a habit of that. And as you drop a bomb occasionally in your maturity of Christ, you ought to sense some conviction and you ought to go, Lord, I know that's not what you desire of me. At some point, uh, I think the obscene language for me is gone. Like, I, I'm, like the Lord has just freed me of that for a long, long time. But I can find myself being pulled into vulgarity and crude jokes. I can, I can even with, with friends, you can be pulled into to sexual innuendos and just things that even in marriage couples that just at the end of the day, if you think through it, go, I don't know that honors the Lord. And so we just got to think through that. Uh, vulgarity, slanderous talk, that's the idea. We would rather be characterized as people who love Jesus and it shows with our mouths, right? And so we got to think through those things. Um, at the end of the day, here's the other one. Some of you are like, I never cuss. And some of you already feel better about yourself. I never cuss. I don't ever do those things. And, but here's the deal. It, you're like, I don't have obscene talk. I don't have vulgarities. But some of you, what you have is criticism. And here's what you need to know. Criticism is as ugly to the Spirit of God as is vulgarity. And so I think we've characterized in the church, it's okay to be uh, a, a person in the church, and as long as I don't cuss and say, you know, tell a nasty joke, that I can criticize and, and say malicious things. And listen, no, equally as a problem. Matter of fact, here's what you need to know. Work cultures right now that are unhealthy, the reason why is because oftentimes there's more negative in the work culture than it is in the positive. You go, well, how do I make a positive work culture? Well, statistics would say that you have to say 5.6 times the encouraging things than you would the negative things if you want to change the culture. So what, by and large, that means is if your marriage is a problem or your family culture is a struggle, you can start with your tongue because your positive words will change and influence much. Matter of fact, most divorcees would say that there was far more negative talk in their marriage than there was encouraging talk. 
The tongue is a powerful thing. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only which is good for what? Building up. And he uses that word oikodome, which literally means to erect or to build up. It fits the occasion. Why? It's a blessing to those who hear. And then, verse 30, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, and grieve there is that word lupeo, which literally means don't offend or make sad or sorrowful the God in which sealed you for the day of redemption. At the end of the day, here's what Jesus has done. He died on the cross for you. He gave you his promised Holy Spirit, the comfort of the helper. He aids us in our life. And what he's saying is, at the end of the day, if you are a follower of mine and my spirit lives in you, then how long can you continue to practice falsehood and keep people in the dark? How long can you continue to share half-truths to protect yourself? Hey, how long can you continue to steal and to be theft uh, or thieving? Or how long can you continue to let obscene talk and putrid things come from your mouth? Like at some point, you got to grow up. That's the idea. Why? Because it doesn't grieve the spirit when we grow up. Maturity is never a problem for God. And it says, And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you and along with all malice. Um, that word bitterness is the word picria, which literally means, uh, in a sense, a bitter uh, gall wood. Like it's just disgusting to taste. Think vinegar on your lips. It's nasty. Um, wrath, that's the word thumos, could be also anger. That's the explosion. It's a volcano eruption. He goes, that should go away. Um, uh, the anger there is their natural disposition, uh, or gay, uh, or clamor, or slander. Let it all be put away from you. And, and then he says this, And then be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Here's at the end of the day, he goes, When people look at your lives, they ought to be able to see that Jesus has done something in you. And it ought to be characterized from every decision you make, from the decisions that you make in the workplace to the things that you put in your truck to take home with you, to the things that you use on the company's dime, to the things that you say about your boss or about your wife when she's not around. You ought to be thinking through all of those things. You ought to be thinking about how you handle it in the culture and the workplace. All of this is the things that God cares about, and that is your conduct. Why? Because he says, I forgave you, I live in you, and you're picture, the way you live is evidence of the forgiveness that's been bestowed upon you and the evidence in which you should bestow upon others. At the end of the day, you can't be my people and not act like it. And so in the words of Alexander the Great, if we're going to take on the name of Christ, Christian, hey, we need to either change our conduct or we might need to think about changing our name. And I pray that the Lord would stir our hearts, knowing there is grace in our walk, there's some point where we got to work out our salvation, Philippians 2, with fear and trembling. We've got to grow up into a mature, complete man. No longer tossed to and fro, as Paul said uh, in an earlier verse. And at some point, we no longer drink milk as an infant, but we begin to have the meat of the body, ultimately growing up into mature manhood. That's the goal. And I can tell you this, I still have a long way to go. And I pray that you'll pray for me as I pray for our body, that we would be God's men and women, people after his own possession, loving him, serving him, being faithful to him. And occasionally we're going to mess it up. And then we just go, hey, let me make that right before that sun goes down so that I am God's man. Amen? That I am God's woman. Let me pray for us. Help us, God. We love you. We need you. We praise you. We proclaim you. You are good. You are great. You are steadfast. You are holy. You are perfect. You are pure. God, we know that when we don't exemplify the character of God in our lives, that it, it, in a sense, quenches the Holy Spirit. It makes you sad. It grieves you. 
And Lord, I don't want to grieve you. And I know that I grieve you sometimes because I, I, I kind of dapple with, with sin too long or I'm, I'm not quick enough to, to go and resolve conflict. Sometimes I do it just by the choices or the words that come from my mouth. Sometimes it's the, uh, the half-truth, it's the deception that we can oftentimes use. Lord, help us to put all these things in the light. Help us to be your man and woman. Uh, may we pursue you, love you, serve you, be faithful to you. And God, we pray that your spirit would help us along the way. We love you. We proclaim you. You are good. We, we, we look forward to singing to you and about you as we wrap up our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.